vines are a long-term proposition. They're a perennial plant. Our oldest vineyards are 170 years old and they're still very productive. We have the oldest vinifera vines in the world are in South Australia and Australia generally. That's something that a lot of people wouldn't realise, that that genetic material is the best genetic material in the world. And it's been one of our underlying secrets of our success is that we still have these original vines on their own roots. And I think that was one of the things that when you see those great wines, you go, well, I'd like to do that. So that inspired me to really, I think I've gone up, grower liaison, working with growers is fantastic. And, and I love working with farming families because they're just really honest and they're such hard workers. And I, I learned so much about what I do today from great growers. We're chatting to a few of the 2023 Syngenta Growth Award winners, and today I'm chatting to Nigel Bliskey, who's the Sustainability Advisor Category winner. Nigel, this is actually the second year that we've had the chance to chat with people, and I think as part of this, you're the first viticulturalist we get. But, mate, I really want to understand, like, the influence of agriculture for you, where did it start, and what are some of your early memories in and around agriculture? I grew up on a a sheep and cattle farm up in the Southern Flinders Ranges, South Australia, so I grew up on a quite a hilly um, farm right in the backwalks of the Flinders Ranges. So I, my early memories were helping it, you know, muster sheep and drafting sheep with my dad. And shearing was always a big highlight. You know, mum would cook all the good food and we'd uh, eat with the shearers and, you know, help around in the shearing shed. So that was my early experience of agriculture. And, you know, the farm was quite isolated, so we had to drive through lots of gates. So the other really big influence on me was opening gates we had nine gates before we got to the farm so uh i was good at opening gates i don't like doing it but <laughs> that was my early memories did it shape your interest in ag where you're like okay, i can't need to get away from an area where i'm needing to open gates for livestock and, <laughs> and close them after me i guess I, my early experience didn't excite me about being a sheep farmer i didn't mind cattle farming but yeah i think it was i was the second son so my older brother was uh he was more into the sheep side of things so i think it uh, I, I love farming but i i wasn't going to be a sheep farmer so hence where i've ended up can you tell me a little bit about the flinders ranges and like the types of people and characters because you said it's pretty isolated but my take of it is that it is like very very remote i grew up in the southern part of the flinders which is actually the wet we're about 650 mil rainfall so it's the Flinders is very like it's about 800 kilometres in length, so from the south to the north, it's quite a diverse. It's a lot drier in the northern parts of the Flinders Ranges. Um, the southern parts, we're not that isolated, as you say, but our farm was behind a mountain called Mount Remarkable, so you had to drive through lots of creeks and and uh, to get to the actual farm. So we had a house further away, but it was there. so it was a lot of driving through, you know, different paddocks to get to get out to where we're at farm was. So. So it was quite a wet area. So, you know, high rainfall, lots of creeks, lots of dams. Um, So it was a great place to grow up. Beautiful scenery is fantastic. Lots of uh, big gum trees. So I I actually, growing up, I was very interested in all that native vegetation and all the animals and plants and stuff. And so when I actually left school, I went and studied natural resource management at Roseworthy College. That was more my interest rather than running around chasing sheep, (laughs) as it was. Did you have an idea or or someone who you were modelling that kind of career off, like an idea of where you wanted it to go? We were surrounded by national parks on three sides. So I actually, you know, they were very beautiful part, like parts of South Australia. So that was something that really, I was really quite interested in because all the native vegetation that we had around us, which is, is positive in some ways and negative in others for reasons, you know, the 
national parks were very different to what we were doing. That did definitely inform me. And, and my grandfather was a, he knew every plant, every bird. He was a big influence on us as young kids. And when I went to, was at high school, a couple of guys went to university and studied environmental science. So I sort of had a bit of an in- insight into, you know, what was potentially out there. But when I went to university, it was also the biggest wine and wine marketing university in, in Australia at the time. So as it turned out, I loved the environmental side of it, but I discovered wine when I was at university and ended up sort of following that path in the end. What was it about it? Because I can see as you start talking about it, you've got a big smile on your face. So there must have been something. Uh, well, you know, I guess when I was at uni, I started work, meeting all these guys that were in wine and I really, I enjoyed wine, which was always a good start. But uh, so, you know, that gave me a lot of talking to these guys. And when I was studying and drinking wine, I really started to, you know, we were right next door to the Barossa Valley. So we often go and visit the Barossa Valley. So that sort of piqued my interest and through a few other friends that, and family, we had to relatives that were in the wine industry and sort of just meeting those over time it really that was something that, that I got a lot more interest in and we actually when I left uni there wasn't many land that was before land care so early 90s and there wasn't many jobs in environmental science or environment work so one of the things that a lot of people would do would do a vintage work in a vintage so work at the wineries during the harvest after I left university without a lot of idea where I was going to go I ended up doing a wine a vintage down in the Riverland at, for Penfolds, and then and one led to another, and eventually I decided that uh, I was going to go and you know do a bit more study and, and learn viticulture. So, what were the opportunities like? And and area was it to go and work inside a winery, or how did the yeah? Oh, what, initially, what were the studies kind of shaping? Initially, it was the winery side of things was just earn some money. I wanted to do a bit of travelling as well, so you know the the wineries pay pretty well during harvest. But as I said, I grew up in a place that was pretty pristine and open and I wasn't a good, I wasn't, I'm not a good person in a winery. I, I did it for a few years and um, I ended up taking a job uh, at Pathway in the southeast after I left university and I worked in rural merchandise for a while. And doing that for a while, sitting in a shop and I could see lots of guys working in vineyards and I started to really think, well, actually, this is not a bad idea. So I ended up enrolling in a graduate certificate in viticulture and while I was doing that, I was working in vineyards. So I started my career actually training vines and uh, up in the Clare Valley. So I, uh, when I was studying postgraduate, I um, went and actually worked in vineyards and trained vines and learned how to prune a vine. It's something that I've done ever since. Is there something that is quite important as a, as a vineyard manager to actually have spent the time at the grassroots level? Absolutely. I think, you know, learning how to prune, when you prune a grapevine, because it's a perennial plant, it's the way you structure the vine is really important. And that is probably the most fundamental thing about growing wine grapes is, you know, having a balance between vegetative growth and also crop level. But unless you've actually pruned a vine, it's really difficult to get the understanding about what that means. And certainly knowing how to set up a vine and set up a vineyard, you know, the more you've worked in it, the, the better that, you know, the better you do it. It's very easy to learn it all from a textbook, but it's another thing to actually look at a vine and understand what's going on with the vine. And so this is a very uneducated assumption here as well, so you can challenge me on it, Nigel. But when it comes to the pruning, to me, it seems like in Australia we use a lot of backpackers or I'll say like relatively unskilled labour. Yep. But can you get it quite wrong, like in the pruning stage, as if someone nicks the wrong part? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Definitely with the, when you're setting up a young vine, you really need to establish the framework of the vine really quickly. So if you get the wrong people in that, that really can set you back many years. So, you know, it depends a bit on where you are. Like if you're in a cooler climate, like the Barossa Valley where I'm 
space is quite a dry climate. So disease pressure is not potentially as high as, say, in the Adelaide Hills or in Yarra Valley or one of those areas. So in a wetter climate, you need more open canopies to get your preventative sprays in and, and let the air and light come in. But interestingly, it's very critical in a, in a wet climate, but also in a hot climate, what we find more and more of the vines prune poorly, there's lots of growth and the heat and temperature then become an issue. So airflow is also really important in a hot climate. So yeah, you know, you can get it really wrong. It can make the difference between being very good and not so good. So yeah, what would I need to understand about the wine industry at that stage in your career? Where was it at in Australia to understand how and, and why your career has probably shacked up the way it has? Okay, so when I started in the wine industry, that just came out of the 80s, which was a really um, poor time for the industry. There was a lot of vine. There was actually a paid vine pool scheme in, in the Barossa Valley. And the 90s was a new era. There was a lot of young winemakers going to Europe and started making some really great wines that really caught the attention in, in the UK particularly. And so there was a lot of companies that really started to take off. Peter Lehmann's and a few of the, the wineries like that had gone to Europe and really created a bit of buzz around the industry. So the industry was looking to expand. There was a lot of demand for red wine. So at that time, there was a viticulture course created at the University of Adelaide. And again, a few of the guys that I studied with had gone and done postgraduate studies. So, so the industry was on the up. So there was a demand for a lot of new people to come into the industry, viticulture side of things, winemaking. And there was a real buzz around Australian wine. And I happened to be studying with some of the, I guess, if you look at the, some of the great winemakers in Australian industry, they were at university at the time that I was there. So it was a very formative time for the industry. So I was very lucky to be at uni and mixing with some of the, I guess, some of the great Australian winemakers that are now, you know, at top of the industry. So they sort of inspired me a lot to, to get into the industry. What was it about Australian wines that started to, yeah, I guess, cut its straps on the world stage? I think we over-delivered at every price point. So a lot of our wines, you know, we were seen as, you know, sunshine in a bottle and all these sort of things. And there was a lot more serious wines coming out, but they were also at a very competitive price point. And in a market like the UK, which was then the biggest market for wine in the world, and it still is, but it's, it was it was the barrier to be in. And the wines that the winemakers were taking to, the Europe, to England particularly really got people excited because they were as good as the French and uh, that was a, was supplying their market, you know, as one, one of the biggest suppliers in the Italians. So it really created a buzz around the industry and we had a real growth phase through that late 90s and into the early 90s. What I was interested in was how was Australia marketing its wine? So it, it started to get a bit of a footprint on the global stage and a bit of interest, but how are we talking about what Australia produced? I think initially a lot of it was the larger companies talking more about, you know, like I guess you had Jacobs Creek and there was Oxford Landing. There's a range of brands, generally multi-regional and to a price point. So Sunshine in a Bottle was one of the things they talked about with Chardonnay. And, but I think it was value for money was initially probably one of the big things that, that sold the wines. Less about regions and less about, you know, individual varieties, but more about styles and, and reaching price points. And at that point, a lot of that market was dominated by supermarket buyers. So they were looking for certain price points and Australia sort of delivered at most price points. There wasn't a lot of premium, the really top end premium wines at that point in time. But certainly those, those initial brands opened up a lot of markets for Australian wine. Was it difficult for the industry to move beyond that, like positioning itself as that 
affordable piece into the trying to be more high-end and yes. and bougie. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the business I work with, Torbrecht, started in 1994. And one of the ways that I think this business and, and a lot of businesses actually lifted their profiles, getting scores from some of the really influential wine writers in Europe and in US, particularly Robert Parker is one that comes to mind. And so there's a few, although there was always that entry point wine, more and more wine writers were taking best wine seriously. You know, the Henschke's, Philip Grace and Penfold's Grange in the late 90s started to get some really high scores and that really opened up a lot of doors. And particularly with Torrec, we had a wine, we've got a wine called Runrig, which is all from 100-year-old vineyards and that was a $50 wine and they got a 100-point score and then all of a sudden was selling at $250 bottle. So it was hard, but, that, you know, there was the, there's definitely the wines there. There were wines there that the rest of the world hadn't seen, but it took the... I guess that we started at the bottom and worked our way up and are now very successful at pretty much across the spectrum of wine styles. And if we just jump back a little bit, what was your career? Like as the industry was growing, how were you growing your career and what were the options that you were pursuing? I sort of really got into the wine industry when I met all these winemakers. I then went and did some vintages and decided and worked in, in different agricultural areas and then went back and did a postgraduate certificate. Before I finished that, at that stage, there was like 60 winemakers graduating a year from the University of Adelaide and there was six viticultural students that graduated. We all got jobs before we finished university. So I started working in a, a large irrigated vineyard in the Riverland at Wakery and uh, as a technical officer. So my job was to improve wine quality and I started working with soil moisture monitoring and I guess pest control and disease control, like fungicides and all that sort of stuff. So that was my first few years in the industry was working on um, technical viticulture, which is, is something that's always been really fascinated about. I love trial work. I love, you know, studying stuff. And then after a couple of years of doing that, I think I actually had a bit of influence on helping to improve the wine quality from those vineyards and, and then started working with grape growers in the Barossa Valley and around South Australia, including, I also actually worked in Victoria as well. So I moved from technical viticulture into grow, grow liaison and used to schedule all the fruit coming into the winery and, and all that sort of stuff. So that was sort of the first move into more uh, managing sort of grape intake and grape growers. So that's when I started working with uh, around 150 growers at any time. So it was a pretty interesting time seeing lots of different vineyards in lots of different regions. Absolutely it would. Was that a natural progression? Like is that a pathway that most people would take or was it something that you just decided you'd do? In that time... There was a lot of people, new winemakers, new viticultural people that came through. There was obviously the vineyard management side of things, you know, you can do more tractor driving and all that sort of stuff. But because I'd studied at university, I guess we, I went more in that role liaison and, and advisory type of role at that stage. And there was a lot more of that. A lot of the big companies had multiple role liaison, I guess, offices around. So that was one of the main sort of entryways into the industry, other than being a vineyard operator. Did you have a, like a plan or, or strategy around your career? Like were, was there something that was keeping you at that advisor level as opposed to within one vineyard? I guess early on, I, I probably didn't really have a lot of a plan, but uh, I was very lucky. The wine side in viticulture, you can be very much focused at the vineyard side. But for me, I was always very interested in the wine. So we used to do a lot of wine tasting. So I had to actually assess wine and, and work with our winemakers. So that for me opened up a whole new avenue of 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 interest because the company I was with, Yolumba, who I used to work with there, were also major importer of wine. So 
we were very lucky that we got to try a lot of international wine. So a lot of our competitors wine. And so that really, it was fascinating to see the different styles. So when I was involved with the winery grow liaison side, I was also tasting wines with our winemakers. So that really gives you a lot of interest because you can see all these great producers in it. And, and I think that was one of the things that when you see those great wines, you go, well, I'd like to do that. That's, I, I want to be, you know, that's amazing. That's great wine. So that inspired me to really, I think I've gone on grow liaison, working with growers is fantastic. And, and I love working with farming families because they're just really honest and they're such hard workers. And I, I learned so much about what I do today from grape growers. And I'd look at the, the way they grew their vineyards and I'd look at the wine that they made in the winery and I'd go, wow, that's, that you can see the way they're growing the grapes is leading to great wine. And so I learn a lot, but I also, you know, I want to be as good as these, the French or the Italians or the, you know, the Americans, whoever it was, that was, I was like, right, we can do that. And I saw when we, when we got it right in our vineyards and our winery, we were as good as anyone. And, and I think that's partly what drives me is I want to be the best. We are the best, you know, and I think in our region like where I work now, the Barossa Valley, to, you know, there's six, seventh generation grape growers who probably don't really understand that they've got the oldest wines in the world and we produce the great wines of the world. And it's also a fire in your belly, like, I want to do that. We can do that. And at that stage, there was a very optimistic industry that was on the way up. Certainly in the late 90s, it was very inspiring. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. I'm really interested and like somewhat surprised that we have the oldest vines in the world. Yeah. Well, so Europe had phylloxera, which is a, an aphid that came through from like, the American, when America was founded and all that sort of stuff, they bought vines from America, which had a bug called phylloxera. The European vines didn't, weren't used to phylloxera and it basically wiped their wine industry out in the 18, 1830s through to the 60s. So they had to replant, they grafted onto American rootstocks so they can still grow the varieties, but they've got a, an American rootstock. Fortunately, in, mostly in Australia, we don't have it. So there's areas in Victoria that do. But South Australia quarantined itself in 1895, basically between 1895 and 1960, there was no vines brought into South Australia. So we've been able to keep phylloxera out of South Australia for over 100 years. So that's why we have the, the oldest vinifera vines in the world are in South Australia and Australia generally. So yeah, that's something that a lot of people wouldn't realise that that genetic material is the best genetic material in the world. And it's been one of our, I guess, underlying secrets of our success is that we still have these original vines on their own roots that, you know, when you graft and you, you add another genetic thing into that vine, it changes the, the overall picture of the vine. And they lost that genetic diversity of all those different vineyards. So, yeah, so it's quite a, it's, huh. it's not people actually understand that, but it, 
it is very significant now. That is cool. Question, now I know that you are very competitive. I could tell that very quickly. But what does it take to be like a world-class winery and vineyard? Like what are the characteristics of, of a business that excels? I think you have to have a, I've heard um, people talk about it before, patient capital. I think you have to have a long-term view of where you want to be. You know, you've got to have a, it's very, if you've got a, an aim, you know, you, you know you're, you're what you want to do, that helps, but you've got to have patience because vines are a long-term competition. They're, they're a perennial plant. You know, our oldest vineyards are 170 years old and they're still very productive. So you have to have, you have to be of that mindset that I'm, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to, I'm going to work at this. It's not a, you can't just create something great in a, in a short period of time. So it's that long-term view. I think for me, it's attention to detail. You know, it's the one percenters. You've got to understand the industry you're in and the plants that you're working with. For us, it's plants, animal animals or whatever, but you, you really need to know those plants. And we, you know, when what we do, we don't manage any one block the same. Every block has its own characteristics. So it's taking that time to understand what, what is important in those particular vineyards or blocks that we work with. So, But it's attention to detail. You really need to be looking at it and studying it and working on it. You know? and, and for great wine, it's actually about not doing uh, more, it's about doing less, to be honest, which is hard. To, it doesn't make sense. But it, the more you feed it, the more you grow it, probably the less intense you get. Interesting. And then within all of that, how do you manage trends and how do you go like fad versus emerging trend? It's a good question because for Oster Valley, for where we are, we've got Shiraz in our vineyards. It's certainly not the, the variety that everyone wants at the moment, but I guess we've always stuck at what we do well. It, it suits our environment. So it's very easy to get drawn into, oh, this is the latest trend. You know, orange wine is a, is a trend at the moment. And, and look, there's some really good ones out there, but Again, I think you've got to focus on what you do well. And, you know, obviously the vineyards that have survived 170 years, you know, they're suited to our environment. So again, it's trying not to filter out what is, you know, I think a lot of the warmer climate wines that we're making, full-bodied wines are not necessarily the, the most trendy thing at the moment. But I guess when we really focus on wine quality, if it's a good example of a full-bodied wine, it's still selling quite successfully. So it's not chasing the trends. It's more about, Sticking to your knitting, as they say in the old days, you know, stick to your knitting. And that's what we do. I think that's very important, you know, not getting caught up in all the trends. So I've got a question. It's been a few weeks since you were announced as the sustainability advisor winner for the Syngenta Growth Awards for 2023. So what is it like to be recognized by an award like this? It's a little bit embarrassing. I wasn't really expecting to, to win. I looked at the quality of the people and they've done some great stuff. Um, it, it's very it's personally rewarding for me, but I think, yeah, I don't want to make too big a deal out of it. That's not really my thing, but it's very great to be able to win it. And I like to think that it's good for, in agriculture, probably viticulture is not a big point and winemaking is not a big part of it, but it's good for our industry to have some, you know, some positive news out there. And, and, and I hope it, you know, like in any agriculture industry, we're struggling to get people into our industry. So for me, good news is a, any good news story is a good thing because it is a good career and it's a great industry. I think we're a very well-class industry and I don't necessarily think that people really understand that. So again, I think it's good for the industry as a whole to have, you know, people winning some sustainability awards. You say it's a bit embarrassing, but I don't think it is at all because <laughs> looking at the, the list of people that were narrowed down to be the regional award winners and then ultimately the national finals, which you got, it's a pretty unreal 
group of people in all the different categories. Yeah, definitely. It's great to be able to, you know, we met up for the awards and to talk to those guys. I don't think I ever want to stop learning. It's so good to meet different people in different industries. And, you know, I, I think that I'm really looking forward to our, our study tour that we're going to do next year because there's so many things that I see in agriculture and in other, we often lend technology from other agricultural things. So to meet people doing that and, you know, that are working with different people, it's, it's great to get that experience. Um, and, and I've been lucky in my career to be able to travel and, and I may not necessarily be able to directly relate something to it, but to, to actually get that experience and see what people are doing in other industries and stuff that has been really beneficial for me as, as a viticulturist to actually maybe take something out of a technique that someone's using and, and adapting it for what we're doing. So I think it's a wonderful experience to be able to meet those people and just talk to the fat and see what they're doing. You'll definitely be a very popular person to have around the table when it comes to bringing the wine list out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is that something you've sought out throughout your career, like the ability to be able to cross-pollinate across different ag industries? Is that something which you think will be something like that you'll really focus on over the next 12, 18 months as part of this? You know, before I sort of got into viticulture, I worked in different parts of the industry and so I've always had a bit of an understanding of different industries, but certainly that the ag tech is something that I've been lucky enough to be in my career to actually do a lot with, you know, the soil moisture probes and near infrared and this sort of stuff. But I more and more look at broadacre farming as a, a leader, you know, in that ag tech sphere. So yeah, I think we are definitely viticulture is a bit more it's harder to mechanize in a in a vineyard situation, but you know, again, we've got the same challenges in terms of workforce. So I'm really looking at other industries to who are, who are probably a bit more early adopters than we are, but it's very important to keep your eyes focused outside of just what you do because there is so much technology coming that can be benefit for everyone. 100%. Totally agree. And, you know, we've got some young agricultural apprentices working for us now. Part of the draw card is to try and with the next generation is actually technology and saying, you can get to drive, you know, the tr new tractors are going. I grew up on massive 135 tractors and to get in a new Fant, it's a bit scary. <laughs> they're all touchscreen. But the the younger guys that we've got are just, they're all over it. They just press buttons. And, you know, you can adjust everything. It's just uh, for us old guys, it's a, it's a bit more daunting. But if we can get people into our industry, you know, they like doing that stuff, that's fantastic. So tell me a little bit more about the team that you've got at Tobruk and what are you guys growing? You've touched on it a little bit, but yeah. What are you guys doing and, and the types of farming that you're doing as well? So we own, manage at least 130 hectares of vineyard. We've got a lot of, a bit of other native vegetation and stuff, so we manage more land. My team consists of myself, I'm the overall vineyard viticulturalist for the company and I have a technical viticulturalist and an operations manager who are more senior people. Tom is my technical assistant, he, uh, technical guy, he oversees a lot of the irrigation and all that sort of stuff. And then I've got senior operator and i've got two young apprentices that have worked through their business and they decided that viticulture was worth while and there's been some excellent opportunities to get some grants to get some apprentices on board so basically we look after vineyards ranging from young vineyards hundred and few years ago to up to 170 old mines so some are mechanized some are irrigated and we still have dry land vineyards so our, you know we we maintain all the obviously disease control, pruning, but we actually use external contractors for pruning. But very much because of the age and the, I guess these, the importance of these vineyards, we still do a reasonable amount of hand detail ourselves and also do a lot of training with our, the people that we get into our vines. 
aren't just brought in off the street. They're, that we try and keep a very small team who we work with every all through the season. So that's been really good. We've actually gone to our contract and said, we just want the same people and we train them. And they now love coming and working for us. So they do our pruning, training, our thinning, and then our great picking. So it's amazing when you get the same people looking at the vines throughout the season. So we, we're, not, we're very passionate. We still do a bit of pruning in the really key blocks ourselves, but overall, because of the size of the vineyards, it's really critical to have people that actually, that attention to detail I've talked about before. You really need to invest your time in, in the people who worked in the vineyard. So it hence having the same sort of people coming back makes a massive difference. And I think it helps with our, well, I know it helps with our overall quality. We wear, you know, our vineyards look really good. They're pruned well and we get the job right. But so, yeah, so again, we do use irrigation, but we try and use the least amount of irrigation that we can, which for our quality product makes a big difference. So a question I've got for you in terms of where where viticulture is heading into the future. I guess we touched on trends and fads and things. One of the ones that probably isn't disappearing is consumer and society's interests in lower emissions and greenhouse gases and, and all of that. Yes. How are you guys... I guess, adapting to, I'll say, the new world that we live in. And do you see it as a challenge or as an exciting opportunity? I definitely think it's an opportunity. I guess, you know, with my background, in, in like, when I was at uni, I majored in soils and land management. So I, I had a lot of interest in soils before I even got into viticulture. But we are talking about it a bit before on Camel. We've got these old vines. They're world heritage. So we're very mindful that we are custodians of these old vineyards. So... When I started at Torbrek, I had the opportunity to manage some vineyards that, had, that hadn't been a lot of investment in it. But my one poor thing was to make sure that we looked after the soils and the vines the best we could so that they're there for the next generation. They can still live for, you know, three, four hundred years, no problem. So they're 170 now. So fundamentally, I was really focused on how do we maintain and improve what we have here? So this regenerative farming idea. So when I started here at Torbrek, there was a lot of issues in terms of vine vigor and, and there were some poor soils. So I really got thrown in the deep end. I was like, how do I manage this stuff? You know, how do I look after these old vines? So I was on that path anyway. As it turns out, I do a lot of work with our customers. Customers come to Torbrek all the time and I do a lot of touring around and talk about the vineyards. So it's my focus on that and, and the people I work with are very also really passionate about that. So. As it's turned, as we sort of move through this process, of we've done a lot of work with our soils. We're putting a lot of mulches under vine where we've stopped cultivation, we've sowed down pastures, we're using sheep in our vineyards. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about, we're, we're doing these things. It's been a wonderful process because as in the last eight years, we've seen our customers who visit, that story is resonating. So not only is it great for our vines and it, it makes me feel good, our consumers, they're buying into it. We like to talk about what we're doing. You know, it's, there's lots of people that are in industry that we're now in wine that talk about it. They don't have their own vineyards, but they're organic and they do this. And I think there's a bit of that greenwashing that you want to be able to say you, you have the credentials, but we, we like to live that. And with the old vines, you know, we're seeing the, the yields are more sustainable. We have a few trunk diseases that get into these old vineyards and we work with our pruning to actually, um, to really eliminate as much of that disease, but grow a better, healthier vine. So again, it, it really flowing together. The ideas are, are actually resonating with, with the consumers and people love the story of the old vines. So 
you know, it, it helps when you're trying to really look after them. So, and I think we are getting better, a lot better wines and certainly better consistency by focusing in on, I guess, regenerative farming and, you know, understanding the, the, the things that drive our, our vines. So, yeah. So, you know, again, I think it's just a natural progression. We want to be able to leave our vineyards in a better position than what we start with them. And the old farming techniques in our area were cultivation. And, you know, they didn't water and they, they grew dry land, but the, the soil side of it, you know, after 100 years of cultivation, there was issues coming up. So, again, we, it's been nice to be part of that movement away from those older practices into newer practices. And, again, I think it's hit the, at the time, you know, coming into the, where we are now, it's really important to have those, those stories there to, in your toolkit. For sure. Well, it sounds like it has been quite an evolution in your career. One thing I'd love to know, having experienced what you have now, seeing the industry where it's at, if you were starting again and stepping out of university, what would be a pathway that you'd be looking to pursue? I think one of my, I would say to these, and I say to some of these students, because we'll actually come and see me now, is actually learn how to prune a vine. Actually get in a vineyard, get in a tractor, actually learn the hands-on things. Because we're working with a living plant, a living organism. I think the best grape growers that I ever saw were in their vineyards. There's a lot of people that drive around in tractors and they don't actually get out of the vineyard, out of the, out of the tractor. They like being in the tractor, so that's good. That's all fine. But get out and get your hands dirty. Before you study, because study teaches you to think and critically think, but actually do the work in the vineyard because it is a hands-on thing. And the other thing I would say is it did never hurt me to work in the winery and understand wine a little bit as well. So our industry is a very, it's still about relationships. So if you understand the product, it's a lot easier to talk about it. And having people from the vineyard side of things that can actually talk about wine and, and more than just the vineyard adds another level of um, integrity to what you do. So I'd say get out there and do it, but study it as well. Perfect. Well, Nigel, thank you so much for sitting down and having a chat with us. Thank you so much and congratulations on being a Syngenta Growth Award winner and I can't wait to follow your journey and maybe we catch up again to hear what it's like after the international study trip. Thank you very much. I'd love that. That'd be great. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.